There are some moments in my life um, that are so crystal clear in my mind, like I can remember the details of the moment, like the colors of the carpet, the people in the room, um, the smells in the air as if they were yesterday. We all have things like that in our life. I remember um, in second grade, sitting in my library with the orange carpet, um, watching the Challenger lift off because as you may remember a school teacher went up with the challenger so they brought all the elementary school teachers together because this was a a huge development we all got to watch and i remember when the challenger exploded not understanding what had happening but i remember like like it was yesterday the teachers in the back of the room all beginning to cry and how somber the rest of the day was like that moment will never leave um my memory i remember in middle school when i was in seventh grade um when desert war uh desert storm started in iraq and for the first time you could watch a war live on television i remember being in the basement of a middle school we were playing a basketball game against between the seventh and the eighth grade games and everyone being huddled around this little television watching the war and as a seventh grader being scared to death that my coaches were going to have to go, that my dad might have to go. All I knew of war was Good Morning Vietnam, the movie. So, you know, I saw they were just going to draft us um, and send us all. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. I remember sitting in my English class my senior year and watching the OJ verdict being read. And probably a lot of you can remember exactly where you were at that moment watching that. I remember the night I went to bed after Al Gore got elected president. I remember like it was yesterday and then waking up the next morning and he wasn't president anymore. Like that moment will never leave my my mind. I mean, serious things that have happened in life that have just kind of solidified themselves in my memory. And then I remember like less, um, less important things in the world, but important to me. I remember in 1990 when my boyhood team, the Cincinnati Reds, won the World Series by sweeping the Oakland A's. I remember with my friends in southern Ohio running around the streets with brooms um, in the middle of the night celebrating that our Reds had won. And then I remember against that same Oakland A's team, the Kansas City Royals in the wild card game two years ago. I'm sure you remember where you were at this moment. I was in the stadium when Salvi popped that ball down the left field line um, and Christian Cologne came around to score. I, I, re- I remember the very large, very intoxicated man that was behind me who picked me off my feet and gave me a bear hug and kissed me on my cheek, who I had never met before in his life. I remember his bushy beard like it was yesterday. And while that moment would have been so inappropriate in any other moment in life, it, then it just seemed right. It just seemed like that was the thing to do. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget when I was in college watching Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield fight for the second time, and Mike Tyson spit out his mouthpiece and bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. You remember that moment if you were a part of this? And I remember about that fight that Holyfield had this verse on his trunks, Philippians 4.13. I'd never really been introduced to that verse before as a Christian growing up in church. But I remember seeing Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. And I remember as a college student thinking, Philippians 4.13 means I can knock out Mike Tyson through the power of Christ. I thought that's what that verse meant, that Jesus can help me knock out Mike Tyson. Do you know that that's not exactly what that verse means? (laughs) Do you know that that verse actually means the exact opposite of that? I want to show you that verse today in this study that we're in on gratitude. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians or fire up um, your journey app on your smartphones. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. And as we move to Philippians 4, let me give you a quick history of this very little but very awesome book of the New Testament. It's one of four what are called prison epistles. The Apostle Paul wrote the books of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
um, while he was in prison in Rome. Paul was a man who was a church planner, planted churches all over kind of the Mediterranean world, and he ended up in jail because of it. But he wrote letters to some of the churches he'd started just to let them know how things were going. Philippians was one of those. This church in Philippi, this city in Philippi, was in a region of the world known as Macedonia, in a city known as Philippi. Um, and it was where Paul had founded the first church in Europe. Um, so Christianity started in Europe in Philippi. Uh, Macedonia and Philippi were important places in the history of the world. It was named after Philip II of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father, who first kind of set down roots there on behalf of the the Greek Empire. Um, It was the city where the Roman generals Antony and Octavian defeated the Roman generals Brutus and Cassius to take Rome from a republic of kind of separated states to an empire altogether. So this place historically Big things happened. The, the Greek empire kind of launched from here. And then the, the Roman empire would later kind of launch from here. And then kind of the church in Europe would kind of launch from here. This was a really important place. And it was written to a church that started as a women's ministry. Paul showed up in Philippi. He went to the synagogue one morning. There were no men there worshiping. He couldn't find any men in the city worshiping the Lord. So he went down by the riverbank and he found a group of women who were praying together. And he said, we'll start with you. And he started this church as a women's ministry that then exploded as a Christian movement all across Europe. And the themes of Philippians, this is a short little book. You should read it this week if you have an extra 12 minutes in your day. Um, Or Paul basically saying in Philippians 1, hey, I'm okay. I just want you to know I'm in prison, but I'm okay. They knew he was in prison. They were worried about him. He said, I'm in prison, but I'm okay. He also said, listen, I'm in prison, but Jesus is worth it. The gospel is with it is worth it. The work we're doing is is worth it. Don't feel sorry for me. He told him to keep living for Jesus. He said, I'm here because of what started in you. Man, don't let me down. Keep living for Jesus. Make it worth it. He said, keep growing spiritually. Keep learning spiritually. He told him to be unified as a church. But then the last chapter of Philippians is basically Paul saying, thank you. They had found out he was in prison. They sent him some money. They sent him some food. They sent him some clothes. They sent him some writing material so he could write letters like this. So this was kind of a long thank you note with some spiritual truth in it. And by the time we get to Philippians chapter 4, Paul is saying, hey, thanks for the offering. Thanks for the stuff that you sent. And that's where we pick up this great verse that Evander Holyfield first introduced to my generation as a verse that meant you could knock out Mike Tyson in the name of Jesus. Let's start in Philippians 4.10 and read through verse 13. Paul said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you didn't have any opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what I can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. You see, not only does Philippians 4.13 not mean I can knock out Mike Tyson in the name of Jesus, it actually means something closer to even when Mike Tyson knocks out me, it'll all be okay because I have Jesus. It's like exact, the exact opposite of what you should put on your trunks in a boxing match. Philippians 4.13 is all about gratitude. It's about gratitude that's fueled by contentment. It's about this, this secret, Paul says, this secret called contentment that allows you to be grateful even when you're laying on the mat, even when you're locked behind bars, even when everything isn't going according to the dream of your life, you're able to have gratitude because you have learned the secret 
of contentment. And we're in this series called The Lost Art of Gratitude, really not to learn gratitude, but to learn things like contentment. You see, we're going to learn that gratitude is an important spiritual gauge of our understanding of who Jesus is. Last week, you heard Pastor Brandon teach you that until you've accepted grace, you can't give gratitude. It was a great lesson on the gauge of grace in our life through gratitude. This week, I'm going to teach you that until you have found contentment, you can't have gratitude. So we're going to see gratitude is the gauge of important spiritual truth. It's why this series is important. Why are we teaching the lost art of gratitude? Really, it's not because of gratitude. If we re-engineer these truths, if we re-engineer these statements that we've taught you you're going to learn the real reason that we're teaching this series. Look at these truths again from last week and that we're going to learn this week. Go ahead and put them on the screen if you would, guys. We've learned these two things. Until I've accepted grace, I can't give gratitude. So gratitude becomes a gauge that tells me how much you understand grace, which tells me how well you understand the gospel, which tells me how much you understand about Jesus. Gratitude is no more than the gauge That helps me understand what you think of Jesus. Today we're going to say, until I found contentment, I can't have gratitude. So gratitude then isn't the end result, but gratitude is a gauge of how content you are. And contentment tells me how much you trust God for where you are in life right now. And it tells me how you view God. So gratitude is not the goal. But how you view Jesus and how you view God is seen in the level of gratitude that you have in your heart. Because we're going to learn that a gratitude problem is a spiritual problem. A gratitude problem is not an American problem. Well, there's not grateful for anything. No, a gratitude problem is a spiritual problem. Not having gratitude is a sign of something deeper in your life, something deeper in your heart that's missing spiritually. And today we're going to focus on contentment, or actually we're going to focus on discontentment. Let me ask you a couple questions this morning to kind of simplify this into everyday talk, okay? Would you describe yourself this morning as content? or discontent? As you just think about your life, would your spouse describe you as content or discontent? Would you say you're satisfied in life right now with where you are and how things are going? Or would you say you're unsatisfied with the current state of your life? Would you say as we head into Thanksgiving that you're grateful for where God has you and what God has given you? Or would you say you're beginning to become resentful? or even bitter, of where you are in life and what you have in life. See, gratitude is an important spiritual gauge, and a gratitude problem is a spiritual problem. If you're struggling with gratitude, maybe it's because you're struggling with contentment. And if you're struggling with contentment, it's probably because of one of these three spiritual struggles that I call contentment thieves that I want to talk to you about today. What are these contentment thieves that If you're going to have gratitude, you have to have contentment. If you're going to have contentment, you have to overcome these things. What are these things? I want to show you three of them today. I call them contentment thieves. The first is coveting. It's not a word we use very much. If you know the Ten Commandments, you've heard this. Coveting, do not covet, is the tenth of the original Ten Commandments. It's not a word that we use a whole lot in our language. Let me tell you what coveting is. Coveting, scripturally defined as desiring more than God has given you just because you see that it exists. It's knowing what you have and then seeing what else is out there and wanting that too. That's what coveting is. For those of you who know the Bible a little bit, 
Coveting was the first sin of humanity in the Garden of Eden. They saw something they didn't have and they wanted it. Coveting was the first sin of the people of Israel in the Promised Land. A guy named Achan saw something that he didn't have and he wanted it. Coveting was the first sin that we see really prominent in the church in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira saw something that wasn't supposed to be theirs and they took it. Coveting is a major problem from Genesis all the way through Revelation. This thought of desiring something that I don't have just because I see that it exists. Coveting is this thought that with everything God has given me, I want that too. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever looked around your life and thought, man, with everything God has given me, I'd like that too. That is the spirit of coveting. And we find this mindset presented in the Bible from time to time that with everything God has given me, I want that too. The patriarch of the Judeo-Christian faith is a man named Abraham. He had a grandson named Jacob. Jacob had a wife named Rachel. Rachel, for a long time in their marriage, couldn't have kids, and it broke her heart. She cried out to God, I imagine, day, night, sometimes in the middle of the day and the night, that God would give her children. And finally, God answered that prayer. After years and years and years, God answered her prayer that God would give her a child. And she named her child Joseph, which translated means, may he give me another one. The minute God gave her what she'd been asking for her entire life, the minute she received her blessing, she named her blessing, can I have another one? How many of us do that? The minute God gives us what we really, really have been wanting and praying for, the minute we have it, we think that is awesome. Can I have, an, can I have, a, can I have another one? You see, if you look at your life right now, and you're expecting what comes next to bring you true contentment, you might have a coveting problem. Let me ask you this coveting question. Let me ask you this contentment question. I want you to think about this for a minute, because this is an un-American way to think. What if you never had any more than you have right now? Just think about that for a minute. What if you never have anything more than you have right now? Could you be grateful and content with that? What if you never have any more than right now? Let me ask some questions that don't make sense in terms of the American dream. What if you live in the same house, same apartment, same townhome that you live in now for the rest of your life? Would that be okay? What if you have the same furniture? Somehow it holds up enough to throw a towel or a blanket over it when it rips from time to time. What if you have the same furniture for the rest of your life that you have now? Would that, would that be okay? What if you drive the same car if you're able to keep it running and you never get an upgrade in your car for the rest of your life? Would you be okay with that? What if you have the same job? Not only the same job, but you work for the same boss and you make the exact same thing you make and do the exact same thing you do for the rest of your life. Would you be okay with that? Could you learn to be not just content with that, but have gratitude for that? What if your kids play on the same level of sports teams that they're currently on and they don't make it to varsity and then into college and then beyond. Would you be, would you be okay with, with, with that? What if you have the same friends or lack of friends for your entire life? Could you learn to be content in your life? Or do you think gratitude comes with the what's next in life? You see, it's one thing to dream for more. It's one thing to even desire better. I, I think that God puts hope in our life that allows us to do that. But it's another thing to live in discontent, thinking that's what's next, 
will solve my coveting problem. It might not be a contentment issue. It might be a coveting issue. You see, coveting replaces the gratitude of now with the desires of tomorrow. Coveting doesn't allow us to ever be satisfied or content. Coveting doesn't ever allow us to have gratitude for now. Coveting lives in the desires of tomorrow, and it steals the contentment of now. Coveting always asks, what else? What else can I have that will make me grateful? That's why the Apostle Paul said coveting is so dangerous and contentment is so powerful. Paul told Timothy, a young guy that he was mentoring, godliness with contentment. Not just godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Godliness with contentment. Man, that's where life is to be lived. Because then we don't live for the stuff in the pursuit of the stuff. The key thought is this, contentment allows the joy of life to be found in what's now instead of what's next. You see, you know you have a coveting problem when you believe joy is found in what's next. You know you have a contentment reality when your joy is found in what's now. Look around at what's now. You know, I've always, um, I've always kind of disliked amusement parks. Uh, when I was young, I was afraid of roller coasters. I just, I thought they'd make me sick. They were too big, too fast. I didn't want to go on them. And that presented a problem for me because my dad was an elementary school principal. And on the last day of school every year, they would take the sixth grade class to an amusement park called Kings Island outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up. Um, and my mom and dad would always take our entire family, load us up on the buses. We would go with the sixth graders. And because I was afraid to ride the rides, um, I, you know, I was, I was kind of a drag on the entire day. So my dad would take his sixth grade class and then he would take me to like play the games where you threw the balls and threw the rings and you won all the junk. And I became addicted to that process of winning the junk. I just loved to go to the amusement park and win the junk. I still love at 38 to go to the amusement park and win the junk. Like throughout my life, I would save my money. Now I save more because I'm an adult and I have more. And I take a load of $1 bills and I take my kids to Silver Dollar City and I go play the games to win the stuff. You say, but that stuff is just garbage. I know I don't play the games to win the stuff. I play the games because I like to play the games. I play the games for what's now, not for what's next. Several years ago, Danielle and I were at SeaWorld, and I had one of the greatest game days that I've ever had. Like, it would put me, like, in the game hall of fame if there was such a thing. So I went to SeaWorld, and they had, like, these massive creatures that were bigger than people, and I won, like, all of them. They had, like, eight different ones, and I won all of them. I just kept upgrading, upgrading, upgrading. We had to get, like, little kid push carts to push our stuff around, Dads were giving me high five when they saw me. Kids were stopping to take pictures of us. I mean, it was like an epic game playing day. And as we're walking around the park with all the stuff, Danielle's like, you know that won't fit in the car. Like, you know that's not going to fit in the plane. Like, what is your plan for all this stuff? And I said, nothing. Like, I know, I, I never planned to even leave the park with it. I just want to have it for a little while because the joy is in winning the games, not having the stuff. It's just been a great day having the stuff, even though none of it even left the park. We just handed it out right and left as we went. We took a couple of them back and then left the notes for the ladies cleaning our room and said, hope you have kids, give it to them. These won't fit on the plane and we're not going to buy a seat on Southwest just for our shark. Um, so like you can have it. What if we live life with the mindset that we can't take any of this stuff with us? So why not enjoy it on the day you have it? Because it's not meant for you to take home with you and to become the thing that adds value and identity to your life. That's the difference between contentment and coveting. Gratitude brings joy within the journey. 
not just at the destination. And so many of us think when I get to this destination, then I can be content. Then I will be grateful. And what you don't ever uncover is the coveting problem inside your heart that says you got to learn contentment before you can even be content with more stuff. Contentment's a spiritual issue. Thief number two is comparison. And now I want to tell you, we're going to unpack this even more next week than this week, but comparison is not just unhealthy, it's unspiritual. And let me tell you why. In Matthew chapter 20, it's going to be our key text next week that we're going to unpack for you. We, we meet an owner of a, uh, of a vineyard who pays men to come in and work at the vineyard. And at the end of the day, they're all comparing what they made to what somebody else made. And here's what happens, and it's what always happens in the world of comparison. We don't compare ourselves to others to question ever the motives or the heart of others. You know what happens when we compare ourselves with others? We begin to question the motives in the heart of God towards us. You see, the problem with comparison is it's ultimately always used as an argument against the master. Well, why hasn't God given me this? Well, I've worked just as hard, maybe harder than this person. Why has God done this? Comparison always brings God down to our level and says, you're not fair. Comparison keeps us from gratitude because we feel like God is holding out on us. And I want to be honest, I believe the most mature Christians expect the most from God and do this the most often because we've memorized the promises. And when we tithe and we don't have as much as somebody else who does the exact same thing as we do, but we know they don't give, they're not generous, we begin to wonder what, what God's up to. And when we lead our business with integrity and we see someone in the same industry who leads their business but without integrity and they seem to be doing better than we do, we wonder what God is up to. See, comparison is always used as an argument against the master. Not against the people we're comparing ourselves to. And the people who know God most sometimes use this against him the most. Like the Apostle Peter in John 21. We meet Jesus talking to Peter, one of his most beloved disciples. Kind of the alpha dog of the 12 disciples that Jesus has been developing. And Jesus told him, hey Peter, here's what God's got going on for the rest of your life. And he kind of told him how his life and his ministry would end and it would end in martyrdom. And instead of Peter accepting that, instead of Peter even asking questions, digging a little deeper into what Jesus had told him, he just wanted to know about the other disciples. In John 21, 20, and 22, it says, Peter turned around. Right after Jesus said, you're going to die a martyr. Instead of Peter saying, well, is it going to hurt? Well, when is it going to happen? Is there any way out of it? Can I do anything different? Instead of asking questions about himself, Peter turned around. He saw another disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who Jesus leaned back against at the supper and said, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, Peter asked, well, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. See, even the most mature disciples see God's will for their life and say, okay, I understand that's your will for my life, but what about their life? What about his life? What about her life? And comparison becomes not just unhealthy, but it becomes unspiritual. You see, comparing your life to others will rob you of the true spirit of contentment that brings gratitude. And here's a curveball in life. Every now and then, sadly, comparison can bring feelings of gratitude, what I would call kind of false feelings of gratitude, but only contentment can bring a spirit of gratitude. You say, tell me what you mean by that. Our team just got back from Kenya two years ago. I was in Kenya with them. And I'll tell you, when I return from Kenya, when I return from India, when I return from Israel, any time I return from a mission trip, I have more gratitude. You know why? Because I have more stuff than the people I've just been visiting. It's comparison, but just in reverse. So for, for a minute, 
When I look at somebody that I feel way more blessed than, I can have extreme gratitude. But that's not real gratitude. That's not real contentment. That's just a leg up in comparison. So every now and then we can feel grateful because we look around and say, wow, look how blessed I am compared to everyone else. That is not contentment. That is not gratitude. That's just comparison. Gratitude that we see from Paul is Paul says, boy, compared to everyone else, I think I have it worst. But man, Jesus has been so good to me. Contentment doesn't come through comparison. In Galatians 6, 4, Paul said it this way, just pay careful attention to your own work. Then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Do you have satisfaction from your life and what God has given you? Or do you have to compare yourselves to others first to be satisfied with who you are and where you are? Comparison is a thief of contentment. And contentment's a requirement for gratitude. And then thief number three is complaining. I believe Paul writes one of the most direct, strong verses in the entire Bible. Just a chapter before he writes on contentment. In Philippians chapter 2, he writes on complaining. And let me give it to you as straightforward as the Apostle Paul gave it to you because it shows both a lack of contentment and gratitude. Do everything without complaining. Let's stop right there. Does anyone want to say amen? amen. I mean, does anyone with a teenager want to say amen? Like, do everything without complaining. Why? Because God said. You should use that this week when your kids start complaining about stuff. It's a Bible verse you should memorize. Do everything without complaining and arguing. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. In another Bible translation, it says you will shine like the stars in the universe if you don't complain. Did any of you see the super moon on Monday or Tuesday? I don't know if you know this. If you're not a sky watcher like me, the moon was closer to the earth on Monday than it's been in 68 years than it will be like for the next 40 years. Um, it was a full moon. And at first I read all the articles about the supermoon. I thought that's not going to be any big deal. And then I saw it and it almost, it sometimes looked 3d. Like it looked that much closer and bigger that it just, I mean, it really stood out. Danielle and I were on a late night walk and it felt like it was kind of dusk. Um, and it was really late at night because the clouds had kind of passed. And I mean, this supermoon was illuminating the sky last Friday morning. Um, some men in our church who hunt, um, took me duck hunting. Um, and there's some really good and some really bad things about duck hunting. The worst thing about duck hunting is my alarm went off at 1.45 a.m. That's at night. That's not in the morning. There is no 1.45 a.m. in the morning. That's still at night. Um, so it was bad when my alarm went off at 1.45 a.m. But when we pushed the boat into the little marsh at about 4.45 a.m., and it was pitch black, and we were away from any city light, the stars in the sky were just unbelievable. I mean, they stood out against the dark contrast of, you know, the, the deep Southwest Missouri. It was unbelievable to see the stars shining in the darkness. Paul's telling this church in Philippians, you want to stand out like a supermoon? You want to stand out like bright stars in a dark place? Just don't complain. I mean, think about that one little simple piece of advice. Paul didn't say you want to stand out, excel. You want to stand out, be the first one to church, the last one to leave. Paul didn't say if you want to stand out, get straight A's. Paul said if you want to stand out like the stars stand out on a dark night, just don't complain. Don't complain and you'll look different from everybody else. See, complaining is a very visible sign of a lack of contentment and a lack of gratitude. Paul's saying be content, have gratitude, don't complain. 
You'll stand out, I promise. See, contentment mutes complaining. You know why? Because the voice of contentment in our heart becomes louder than the voice of coveting and complaining that comes from our mouth. So when you hear someone who's not complaining, you need to know their heart is speaking loudly about how grateful they are about their life and their contentment. If the heart has gratitude, it speaks loudly and it stands out as different. So gratitude's important. Gratitude's important because it's the measuring stick of grace. Gratitude's important because it's the measuring stick of contentment. Let's go back to these verses on the screen a little bit. If you have gratitude, it shows that you understand grace. It shows that you've processed the gospel. It shows that you're, you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Gratitude is a measuring stick of grace. And if you have gratitude, it shows you have contentment. It shows you begin to trust God. It shows that you don't covet what you don't have more than being grateful for what you do have. It shows that you're not comparing yourselves to everyone else before deciding whether or not it's been a good day or a bad day or a good year or a bad year. It shows that your mouth is being quieted by your heart because you don't complain. Are you content? Are you satisfied? I want to give you a few tips. I've learned that every message should boil down to just one or two things that you should try. Because I'm a real practical thinker and I like things to try. So I want to end today by giving you what I call some contentment exercises. And I want you this week as we head into Thanksgiving and maybe for the month of December, I want you to, I want you to, to just process these and maybe think about these things. Maybe cut them out from the paper you had or email yourself the sermon notes on the app and print these out somewhere. But here's some, here's some contentment exercises through some anti-coveting, anti-comparison, and anti-complaining tips. Let me give you an anti-coveting tip. Number one, begin to dream of less. Now, that's backwards from what America tells us. But Danielle and I have found ourselves five and a half years from being empty nesters. And our favorite thing to do is dream of less. We talk all the time now, how far can we downsize? You know, how, you know, how, how much money can we save on our cars? Could we one day downsize to an RV so our car and our house are the same thing? It's like, that's, that's Danielle's like, Heck no. She just said, heck no, sitting on the front seat. Heck is not a word you should say in church. Um, but it's like, you know, that, that might be something, something we can do. We dream of less. When's the last time you've got together and dreamed of less instead of more? It's backwards thinking, but it's spiritual thinking. And then I want you to begin of dream, to dream of giving more. You know why we dream of less for us? Because we want more for our kids and our grandkids. We want more for our church. We want more for the things that are really important to us than that we think will outlive us in the world. So I, I want to challenge you, regardless of what age you are, start talking about downsizing. Start talking about less. Start talking about a life with less so that your legacy can be filled with giving more. I think every Christian should constantly ask themselves the question, how little do I need and how much I can give? I think that's the spirit of Jesus. How little do I need and how much can I give? How little do I need and how much I can give? Try that on for a week or two. Just see what conversations begin to develop. Secondly, let me give you some anti-comparison tips. Would you consider a 90-day sabbatical from social media? Would you just think about it? I feel like social media has been used, has been turned into one of the most unhealthy spiritual things that there is in the world. Specifically for those of us who have teenagers. 
read a study this week in Time Magazine that said teenagers have been studied and they cannot separate real life from social media life. They think it's all the exact same thing. And you know what? I think some moms and dads might have fallen into the same trap. You know you can't compare your backstage mess to someone else's highlight reel. Like that's what social media is. Look at the best moment of this week that's posted and you're sitting there looking at it, reflecting on the worst things that have happened to you and just saying, man, if my life could only be that. Don't compare your backstage to someone's front stage. It's been so rehearsed and has been put on perfectly for the crowd who's watching. I know some people who will not be able to be satisfied on Christmas Day until they've posted it as if like the real world starts online, not in our home. Would you consider a 90-day sabbatical if you struggle comparing yourself to everyone else before you can figure out whether it's been a good day or a bad day? And can you learn to celebrate others? Can you learn to see what somebody else has and just think, wow, good for them? And just stop at that, good for them. You know, I trust God, so good for them. And then when it comes to anti-complaining tips, I want to challenge you to ask somebody to hold you accountable. I used to be a, a part of a text message, group message with a group of guys where Tuesday was, was like no complain Tuesday. And it was like, let's hold each other accountable, like at least for 24 hours, not to complain about anything to anyone on this day. Would you ask somebody to maybe hold you accountable? Hey, when you hear me complaining, will you just stop me and say, let's stand out, let's be different? And will you begin to track yourself? You see, ultimately, gratitude is a measure of how much we understand about Jesus. Grace. Gratitude is a measure of how much we trust God and we trust God for what he's given us and what he hasn't given us, contentment. And this Thanksgiving week, I believe all of us have the ability to make much of Jesus. I believe we have the ability to trust God greatly by having extreme gratitude, learning to be content, standing out in a world where that doesn't come easy. I want to challenge you, find gratitude which will show that you have found grace and you have found contentment. Would you pray with me?